Again and again, we make these decisions as you know, we are going to deliberately make it harder for our police to do their work because we recognize that these roadblocks are better for society, even if they allow some lawbreakers to go free. Is surveillance healthy? How does technology affect power relationships? These kinds of questions have taken on a surprising relevance with the recent revelations of the NSA's data surveillance efforts. But the conversation is more nuanced than just surveillance is either good or bad. Evidence shows that there are areas where people will tolerate incursions into privacy for greater security or even convenience, healthcare, transportation, any number of web utilities that we use on a daily basis. But there are other areas where people are less comfortable or in fact feel the incursion is a violation of fundamental rights. But increasing reliance on technologically mediated interaction, cell phones, laptops, GPS, is simply making surveillance easier, and some might argue more necessary. Bruce Schneier, a security technologist and Berkman Fellow, is one of the folks who is thinking a lot about the fuzzy borders between privacy, safety, and convenience. He recently sat down with David Weinberger to talk about them. Give us an example of where security shows up, but we generally don't think about um, that topic or area as one that is concerned with security. So at the airport, we know, we see the scanners. Um, in healthcare, I guess some, some of us might worry about uh, what's happening to the information that we're writing down or the doctor is gathering. But do you have an example of where security comes, where we should be thinking about security, but it's really very far from our uh, way of thinking about the the topic. Well, I'll use healthcare as examples because you mentioned it. I mean, there's a lot of places that security matters. It's not just security of our information. It's the security of our bodies. We're worried about staying healthy. Uh, there are lots of companies out there that are worried about the security of their revenue stream. Doctors worry about the security of their jobs. Politicians worry about the security of their jobs. You know, all of like the, a different type of security. It, it is, but it is, is there something it underneath it? You know, in all these cases – these different entities, whether they be personal or, or corporate or government, are going to make decisions. They're going to make decisions on what to do. And they're not going to decide solely on what the right thing to do. They're going to have some amount of self-preservation in their decision. So just like you might walk down the street and say, you know, that alley doesn't look too good. I'm going to walk down this more lighted street. A politician might look at a policy decision and say, you know, that alley doesn't look too good. Right? I mean, I'll be vulnerable, so I'm going to move elsewhere. And understanding how he views his security choice will help you understand how the policy levers are. So you might decide to make that alley better lighted so more people will walk down it. Right? That's, that's a choice that someone can make that will affect the security decision. You're right. They're very different conceptions of security. But the same sorts of analyses can be used to look at them both. It's just a way of sort of organizing conflict. In a lot of cases, conflict is, is security. So, I mean, take a biological metaphor, predator-prey. Right? I mean, predators are making security decisions. They try to trade off their personal safety with reproductive success, maybe in uh, – in, in fights between uh, members of the same species or their next meal, right, I mean, attacking other species. Prey also is going to make those same sorts of trade-offs, right, the fight-or-flight trade-off. I mean, these are very, very basic. 
you know, I sort of started my last book by wondering why is it that people have security and rocks don't? I mean, it's kind of a stupid question, but it actually is kind of an interesting one. I mean, what is it about being alive and being intelligent that means you're going to have security decisions? And, and for people, we're trading off individual survival versus group survival. So, which is why we're very two-faced. I mean, we're cooperative and deceptive at the same time. One reason why rocks don't have security issues is that they don't make decisions. So um, when you say you're a generalist, which actually surprised me a little bit because I associate you so firmly with this sort of one path, but it turns out this path is a huge field where it's a question of security. Um, we don't always use the word security to apply to some of the instances that you are um, putting forward. Um, so to what extent is security, questions of security involved in any, we'll just leave it to humans for, at the moment, <laughs> in, in any human decision? No, I mean, is the, that always an issue or is it only in... I don't think it always is. I mean, there are decisions that are straight preferences, Coke or Pepsi, vanilla or chocolate. And there's no security. Right. Uh, is it that we... Um, I'm going to try to get you to expand even further um, your use of the term security. Maybe in the case of Coke versus Pepsi, um, there is a suppressed security dimension that says, well, neither of these is going to kill me or has, has any more likelihood of killing me. And you, you can certainly imagine that. You know, we get out of soft drinks, go into automobiles. Right? There are car companies that do try to push your security buttons. Right? Sobs are safer. Right? Sob for many years, sold itself on we are a safer car. Right? I mean, you can imagine technology companies. The, the safer decision is to buy IBM than somebody else. So there, there are lots of purchasing decisions that have to do with security. Uh, in, in a lot of ways, the health food movement is a food security movement. This food is safer for me. It'll contain less pesticides, less whatever it is I'm worried about. Some, so you can have decisions that run the gamut from a pure fight or flight which is 100% security, to a pure preferential Coke versus Pepsi, which is zero security, and everything in between. And in our marketplace, companies will either suppress or bring out the security aspect of the decision. So, you know, for example, I don't know, uh, flying versus driving. For some people, that's a security decision. Right. It is safer for me to drive. I am too scared to fly. And, and you know, oddly enough, it's, 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 it's sort of backwards. Uh, you know, people have run the, run the math. And after the September 11th attacks, there were more fatalities on the road because people were afraid to fly than the attacks themselves. Right. So the erroneous belief that flying was dangerous killed more people than the terrorists did. So just because we have these beliefs doesn't mean we're going we're gonna to make the right decisions. But I think decisions run the gamut. When you say that um, the same sorts of or uh, same sorts of analysis uh, can be used across multiple domains of security, I'm sort of roughly paraphrasing it. If, if I'm getting it wrong, please let me know. Can you talk a bit about what um, what those forms of analysis might be that are at least roughly or in principle the same, whether you're talking about whether you should buy a, a Volvo or uh, whether you should um, have a healthy breakfast or whether you should walk down an unlit alley? 
or you know click on an email from somebody an attachment from somebody you don't know so so way back in 2003 I wrote a book called Beyond Fear which is about security and technology. And in that book, I laid out a five-step process for evaluating a security countermeasure. It was things like, what problem are you trying to solve? How do the countermeasures solve the problem? What other effects are there? And at the end, you had decided whether it was worth it, right? Whether the countermeasure was worth the cost, right? In the example of, of driving because you were too afraid to fly, the countermeasure was not worth the cost. So you, you lost more by driving. In other cases, it, it is. Uh, in my latest book, uh, liars and outliers, I look at, at trust and security. And there I'm very generally looking at the notion of security as a mechanism for inducing trust. So, for example, I might not trust you enough to, I don't know, uh, you know, trust what you're telling me, but there's some security mechanism by which you can verify what you're telling me. So, for example, you could show me a driver's license, right? I don't trust you telling me your age, but I trust the government who is attaching your age to your name, to your photograph, putting it in this unforgeable piece of paper, and you can show that to me. And so that's a security mechanism that allows me to trust that fact about you. And that way of looking at security as a way of facilitating trust is very general, and that's something I think translates to a lot of different disciplines. And understanding it that way, I think, is useful. So I've been thinking a lot lately about how the Internet affects power and, more importantly, how power is affecting the Internet. Right? I mean, so so we, we know that the Internet empowers the, the non-powerful. It gives it gives the people without a voice a platform and it empowers people to write uh, what they believe and, and topples the power of the publishing industry. Lots of examples of how the Internet makes the non-powerful powerful. But we're learning is, is that the powerful can use the Internet as well. We saw this in Syria where the government was using Facebook to round up dissidents, where the government was using Twitter to promulgate propaganda. And there seems to be this very tight relationship now between power and these new technologies. What it seems to me that happened is the agile were able to use these technologies first, but the powerful, while slower, are able to use them more effectively. And now we're seeing the powerful steering. So we'll have the motion picture industry trying to get laws passed to enable their business models, uh, the FBI trying to get laws passed to enable surveillance. The powerful are, are using the tools at their disposal to make these technologies more conducive for them hanging on to power. And I think that this is, in general, where the, where the battlefields are for Internet policy in the coming years. I mean, we, we, we see a lot about how drones are changing power, allowing uh, the United States to uh, to kill people remotely. On the other side, where we have the IEDs, which allow uh, you know very traditionally non-powerful groups to uh, to attack nation states. And what do you see as the relationship between this um, analysis and your work on security? Obviously. Frequently, security claims, anyway, are used in order to 
um, shore up the power of incumbencies of, of well, less security claims and more more fear claims. I mean, I mean yes, certainly we know that uh, that fear is a very strong motivator. And, and get back to the flying versus driving again. You know, we, here we are making a bad security decision because we fear uh, flying. And there's lots of psychological reasons why that. I mean, I, I've written essays on this. And there's lots of people that have written. Kahneman's written a great book uh, where he lists a lot of the reasons why fear has us make bad decisions and what types of fears we tend to overreact to and underreact to. For example, we overreact to the rare and spectacular and, un- and underreact to the pedestrian. So we fear flying because when a plane crashes, it's in the newspaper for a week. Meanwhile, I mean, I mean 20 plus thousand people die each year in car crashes in the United States and, and, and it never hits the newspapers. So our, our internal compass is perturbed by how the events are, are, are presented. So, yeah, when I think about, about power and, and security, it's not just the powerful using fear to rally the populace to, to their causes. It's how power is using the instruments in its control as a self-preservation mechanism as a mechanism to do their job, which, which would be you know, staying in government, staying a viable for-profit corporation, whatever it is. And the, the decisions they're making are very similar to the decisions someone makes to, uh, to fly versus drive. They, they are based on, on, on self-preservation security decisions. But also, um, I think actually the left and the right uh, agree on this. The National Rifle Association um, is worried that the security measures that require the registration of gun owners will be gives a weapon, so to speak, to a federal government that will want to disarm the populace. So this is the security enables a type of information gathering that allows the exertion of power. And on the left and elsewhere, in fact, there's concerns over uh, you have you now have to show ID in order to travel on an airplane or even on a train, uh, which didn't used to have to do. Um, and that this information, which is being collected in the name of security, will eventually be used in order uh, as an instrument of power over, over people. Um, and so there's that sort of connection between power and security also, unless I'm missing the point about either one of these. I mean, there's that, there, there is that. Uh, I, I'm shocked that this is not at the center of your concern. If you tell me that, that you're concerned about, who have been so con- uh, concerned about and active and, and a, a thought leader in um, our understanding of security, and now you're taking up the issue of power, I'm shocked that this is not the, I would have thought this would be the the linchpin. I'm happy to be wrong. Yeah, I'm not sure. I mean, I, I'm not sure what the linchpin is yet. I'm really just starting to look at this issue. I mean, certainly that is an aspect, I think. But more generally, the collection of data as we go about our daily lives, I think, is something to worry about. And I think that's with just... With regard the, to power. W- w- yes, because the powerful are collecting it. I mean, I mean and, and the powerful includes, on the one hand, Facebook. On the other hand, the FBI. Right? In both cases, data about everybody as they do their stuff, is being collected and stored and analyzed, and decisions are being made based on it. Uh, it is data that we don't have access to in general. I mean, sometimes we do, a lot of times we don't. It is data we're often not allowed to see, not allowed to correct, not allowed to delete. So these shadows of us are being collected in, 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 the, in, a, in the case of Facebook to better sell us ads, in the case of the FBI to better 
I guess, find us before we commit crimes. I mean, some of it's being used for investigation after the fact, but more and more we're seeing predictive policing where the FBI sort of wants to know who the troublemakers are before they make trouble. But but in all of these cases, and it's, so it's not just, I mean, I, I don't know, to me, the, the registration of handgun owners is a huge red herring. I mean, I, it's an interesting question to ask is, if you asked Google, give me a list of gun owners in this country, how accurate do you think it would be? My guess is it would be pretty darn accurate. So, right, so a lot of this is sort of falling by the wayside. You know, we have a lot of complaints about ID checks. I think in five years, that's going to be obsolete. You walk into a store, they're going to know who you are. The explicit ID check, but right. we will be perfectly identified just by just our by gate. by your by your face, by your gate, by the RFID tags on your clothing, by what your cell phone is broadcasting, by a dozen different mechanisms. That identity will no longer be something you assert. It'll be just something, an attribute of you that's known. Which would then seem to um, give the the entities that are collecting this information much more power over us. And, and that and that's my worry, because it's this data is is only available to someone who 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 collects it or pays for it. So someone who spends the right amount of money can learn if I own a handgun or not, right? They can go to Google, buy, buy, buy the ad word. I mean, whatever the mechanism is, go to one of the, uh, the companies that's collecting marketing data and get the list of gun owners that live in my state. And so that's, that, that, that information is for sale. That information can be gotten by the government through any number of mechanisms we've learned that they're using to collect this data, from not only uh, social networking sites, but from ISPs, from banks, from pl- a lot of places where it's stored. But the powerless has no access to it. So yeah, the, the, this data is increasing the power imbalance in a society that I already think is dangerously imbalanced. So would you feel better if, in fact, these, if this data were made publicly available to anyone? Well, that's an interesting question to ask, and, and I don't know the answer because we have, we have some options here. One is we can decide by law not to collect it. So we, we, we can say that just as we say now that certain types of marketing, certain types of price discrimination is illegal. We could say that this sort of data collection and marketing based on it is illegal. We can decide that. That is a perfectly reasonable thing for a government to do. Right? We Governments set the playing fields of markets, so, so we could do that. Uh, we could say that the data can be collected, but m- has to be open, right? Everybody can look at it. We could say the data must be collected and only the collector and the person whom it's about can use it. And that's more of a European way of looking at things where they tend to limit uh, secondary uses of data more than primary uses of data. And it's much more based on consent between the data collector and the person whom it's about. There's a lot of different ways policy can work. I don't actually know the answer, but I really want is for us to have this conversation because I think it's important. So um, this, is, this is interesting because um, some people who worry about privacy do so because they have a sense of embarrassment. They, they don't want other people to know this or that about them or potentially know this or that about them. Uh, if one of the alternatives among the ones you list is that we make this information completely public, that actually says you know, the primary concern is not your, embarrass, your embarrassment, it's equalizing the power relationships. And, and my guess is it won't work because I think in, in less embarrassment and more control. If you think about what happens when your privacy is violated, you, you, get an, you get an email 
uh, for uh, you know baby products, and 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 you know you're pregnant and and you didn't tell anybody. And the question you ask and is there are famous cases. Of there are famous right? cases of that, right? Uh, the question is parents how, finding out that they're teenage daughters. How did you know that? How how did I lose control of that data? A lot of our privacy isn't based on secrecy; it's based on context. I say different things to my family, to my friends, to my work colleagues, to my doctor, not because any of them are secret, but because I have different sorts of relationships. You know, historically, the people who knew how to navigate this the best were teachers. And, and I don't know if you, if you ever have a, have, a, have a child and you're walking down the street with them and you, you pass his like, second grade teacher, that teacher immediately drops from person on the street mode to teacher of children mode and they become a different person. You know, and, and thinking back 100 years ago, this was the whole debate about should teachers be allowed to marry? I mean that was a, a context debate. People couldn't imagine a collision between person who teaches my child and person who has sex. Right? So you had to completely separate those two people. Well, today we allow them to integrate, but we separate the contexts. And this, this collapse of context, I think, is at the basis of a lot of privacy violations. Many people do not have – they don't care about this issue. Let me put it like that. <laughs> they don't care about it because – uh, they're not being rousted um, as potential lawbreakers, and it, you know, it, it, and there are benefits that are sold to us. Uh, some of which are certainly true, I, I would think, the, um, in terms of uh, our safety and so forth. What are the issues that most worry you when you look at the possible abuses of power, the exertion of power over the powerless, based upon data that the powerful have access to and the rest of us don't? What what are the um, instances that sort of keep you up at night that really really concern you? So in a lot of like most rights, privacy is something you don't notice until it's gone. Uh, I had a friend tell me a really interesting story a few months ago. He was in uh, in California, staying at a hotel, and he sitting in his room and looked across the street, and there was a uh, a sign for for from a massage person, and he thought, what a great idea! I can really use a massage. Then he stopped and thought, well, is it that kind of massage or the other kind of massage? He said, oh, I know. I'll, I'll Google the, the company and, and, and I'll see. Then he stops and thinks, do I really want it to be on record that I, you know, that I Googled the massage parlor? And in the end, he didn't do it. The self-censorship that comes with this sort of ubiquitous surveillance I think is very damaging to society. That the self-censorship of dissent, of belief, of opinion, the, the need to conform really harms society. If we believe we're being observed, we act differently. Right? You act differently when someone's watching you. And society gets a lot of value from people who do things that they wouldn't do otherwise. That, that, that's where a lot of social change comes from. So there's a huge risk to society. Sort of uh, like why, why we want free speech. It, right, it's the exact same thing. Well, so I mean, actually, so I do want to challenge that because, as you know, well know, uh, London is saturated with uh, with observations, with surveillance. Um, the figures are astounding, the number of cameras per, per, per person, um, the number of times your image is taken while you're just walking in a, in a day in London. And I think it's arguable 
that really hasn't changed people's behavior, the ordinary person's behavior. They they are in a panopticon. Well, they're in a they are in a panopticon. Uh, in, but then uh, you get used to it and you go about your business. And it's true. And Facebook's another great example of that. I mean, you know, if Facebook is monitoring everything people say. It's, it's collecting the data. It's saving. It's making decisions based on them. And people occasionally rise up in outrage, and then a week goes by, and they forget about it, and they, they, they type the same personal information they did otherwise. And, and we're really good at ignoring the surveillance around us. But, I mean, neither of those are as ubiquitous as everything. And, and, and you might be right that our ability to adapt to whatever normal is uh, can push this a long way, there's going to be a point where it breaks, and I, I don't know where it is, and I don't think we do, and I, and I would hope people are doing, doing some sort of research in this. But, I, but you know, there is a point, and I think that is damaging. Uh, certainly, you know, if you are living in China, you're not going to start an extremist party, where extremists could be a democracy party, because of the surveillance. Right? We know you're not going to do certain things. So... It is going to change your behavior. How much that affects you really depends on how important that behavior is. If you are a closeted homosexual that cannot be out because of the surveillance of the country you're in, which has a death penalty for that, that will affect your physical and mental health to an enormous degree. If it's just going to be where I walk down the street, it might not have that much effect. Doesn't the fact that um, UK, London... Total surveillance, uh, you know, pretty much. People, uh, you know, being in the closet in 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 UK is not a really operative, uh, right. you know, it, at least compared to the way it was just a few years ago. Um, whereas in another culture, which has a more repressive government and is more repressive about sexuality and has surveillance, yes, that's mm-hmm. a terrible uh, situation. But the difference there is, is the culture and the government, not the surveillance. Doesn't that mean that the surveillance actually is not... Um, is not an active uh, force in this equation? I don't know. It's going to have some effect. I mean, certainly what you're really saying is, is, is it's less the surveillance and more what's done with the surveillance data. So, you know, if it's being used to sell you laundry detergent, that's benign. It's being used to arrest you, that's bad. I, that's what I'm suggesting. I have very mixed and confused feelings about this. And I do too. <laughs> and, 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 I, and that's certainly true. Right, we can imagine a, a benign government that will collect this data, and and never use it for anything anything wrong. I, I I'm not sure those governments actually exist. I mean, even in the U.S., that data is being used to arrest people. It is being used uh, to to paint pictures of people as, as undesirables. And and I th- and I think this this is very harmful. But certainly, I mean, we could imagine a a benign government that doesn't do any of this. I'm not sure there's a realistic government that will meet that ideal. And then we have to worry about the corrupting influence. I mean, now that I have the data, I want to use it, which really leads to the prohibitions on, on, on collections, which, which you saw you know, in, in the quaintness of history when uh, London got its first cameras, I don't know, 100 years ago. They, they, there were rules that they could not be pointed at people's front doors because it was wrong to record who is going in and out of a house. I mean, that is something the government decided. And, and again and again, we make these decisions as you know, we are going to deliberately 
make it harder for our police to do their work because we recognize that these roadblocks are better for society, even if they allow some lawbreakers to go free. I mean, it's, it's a really interesting decision. What we're saying there is the risk to us of a more powerful police with less oversight is greater than the risk to us of unarrested criminals wandering our streets. I mean, sort of getting back to the overall, overarching themes that I'm thinking about is that technology is changing things so fast that we're not having the conversations, The things are just happening. The police are saying, great, you know, there's a Twitter feed, let's get it, right? We, we can now spy on every phone call, let's do it. Rather than having conversations as a society of what we want, you know, whether we want a less powerful police and more crime, and, and where, those ba- where those boundaries lie. Thank you very much. Bruce Schneier is an internationally renowned security technologist and author of 12 books, including the recent Liars and Outliers, Enabling the Trust Society Needs to Survive. You can find out more about him and even find video and audio from a talk he recently gave at the Berkman Center on our blog, blogs.law.harvard.edu slash mediaberkman. This episode of Radio Berkman was produced by David Weinberger and myself, Daniel Dennis-Jones, from the Berkman Center for Internet and Society at Harvard University in Cambridge, Massachusetts.